0: eight zero two nine when we fight we win release all political prisoners and the time is almost 7 p.m which means to stay tuned for off the hook coming up here on wbai new york 99.5 fm and wbai.org online stay tuned
1: The number you have reached, 99.5 WBAI, is now off the hook. The number you have dialed is incomplete. Please check the number and try again. (laughs) إن الرقم الذي أدخلته غير كامل. الرجاء التأكد من الرقم ومحاولة الاتصال مرة أخرى. Le numéro que vous avez composé n'est pas complet. Veuillez vérifier le numéro et réessayer.
2: And a very good evening to everybody. The program is off the hook. Emmanuel Goldstein here with you, uh, joined tonight by Kyle.
3: Over yonder.
2: And out in Skype land we have Rob T. Firefly. Good evening. We have Gila. Good evening. And we have Alex.
4: You do. Good evening.
2: Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, sorry, I don't know if anybody caught it, but we played the recordings in reverse order. That's uh, a mistake. We, we don't usually do that. Um, I also uh, want to uh, remind people, please support this radio station because this radio station brings you such fantastic programming, and I'm going to ask you to do that at the beginning of the show, and I'm going to ask you to do that after we have a discussion at the end of the show, and maybe you will feel that this place is super important by the end of this show. I sure hope so. The number to call, 212-209-2950, the website to go to, is give2wbai.org, and usually I say give the number to wbai.org, but I've since learned... That we have gone out and registered the, uh, the, the, the word to as well. So give to, uh, spelled T-O-W-B-A-I dot org goes to the same place. Imagine that. So we don't have to say that anymore, but please support this radio station. It is really, really important, uh, in the uh, world of free speech, which we are going to be delving into, uh, with a passion today. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start by reading a bit of a little story. All right, let's uh, uh, sit, sit close by the radio, because this is going to be uh, rather interesting. Um, it's um, it's a story that ran in a news organization known as Reuters uh, back in November. You might have read it. Uh, it's called How an Indian Startup Hacked the World. We can't read the whole thing. It's 21 pages long, but uh, we're going to read a little bit of it, all right? Uh, it's, um, again, called How an Indian Startup Hacked the World. came out in November. Chuck Randall was on the verge of unveiling an ambitious real estate deal he hoped would give his small Native American tribe a bigger cut of a potentially lucrative casino project. A well-timed leak derailed it all. In July of 2012, printed excerpts from Randall's private emails were hand-distributed across the Shinnecock Nation's Square Mile Reservation, a wooded peninsula hanging off the South Fork of Long Island. The five-page pamphlets... Detailed secret negotiations between Randall, his tribal government allies, and outside investors to wrest some of the profits from the tribes then partner in the gambling deal they sparked an outro- uh, an uproar the uh, The pamphlets claimed Randall's plan would sell out the tribe's lands, resources, and future revenues within days. Four of Randall's allies were voted out of tribal government. Randall, who held no formal position with the tribe, was ordered to cease acting on his behalf. Amid the upheaval, the uh, Shinnecock's Casino hopes faded. We lost the biggest economic opportunity that has come to the tribe in forever, Randall told Reuters. My emails were weaponized. The scandal that roiled the Shinnecocks barely registered beyond the reservation, but it was part of a phenomenon that has drawn interest from law enforcement and intelligence agencies on both sides of the Atlantic. Randall's mm-hmm. inbox was breached by a New Delhi-based information technology firm named Appin." whose sudden interference in the matters of a faraway tribe was part of a sprawling cyber-mercenary operation that extended across the world, a Reuters investigation found. The Indian company hacked on an industrial scale, stealing data from political leaders, international executives, prominent attorneys, and more. By the time of the Shinnecock scandal... Appen was a premier provider of cyber espionage services for private investigators working on behalf of big business law firms and wealthy clients. Unauthorized access to computer systems is a crime worldwide, including in India. Yet at least 17 pitch documents prepared for prospective business partners and reviewed by Reuters advertised uh, Appen's, um, Appen's Paris um, in activities such as uh, cyber spying uh, email monitoring, cyber warfare, and social engineering. Security lingo for manipulating people into revealing sensitive information. In one 2010 presentation, the company explicitly bragged about hacking businessmen on behalf of corporate clients. Reuters previously named Appin in a story about Indian cyber mercenaries published last year. Other media outlets, including The New Yorker, Paris-based Intelligence Online, Swiss Investigative program Runshaw and tech companies such as Alphabet on Google have also reported on the firm's activities. This report paints the clearest picture yet of how Appen operated, detailing the world-spanning extent of its business and international law enforcement's abortive efforts to, uh, to get a handle on it. Run by a pair of brothers, Rajat and Anuj Kar, the company began as a small indian educational startup it went on to train a generation of spies for hire that are still in business today several cyber defense training organizations in india carry the app in name the legacy of an old franchise model but there's no suggestion that those firms are involved in hacking Rajat Kaur's us representative the law firm claire Locke, rejected any association between its client and the cyber mercenary business. It said Carr had never operated or supported and certainly did not create any illegal hack-for-hire industry in India or anywhere else. In a series of letters sent to Reuters over the past year, Claire Locke said that Mr. Carr has dedicated much of his career to the fields of information technology security, that is, cyber defense and the prevention of illicit hacking. Claire Locke said that under Carr's tenure, Appen specialized in training thousands of students in cybersecurity, robotics, and artificial intelligence, never in illicit hacking. The lawyers said Carr left Appin in part because rogue actors were operating under the company's brand, and he wanted to avoid the appearance of associations with people who were misusing the Appen name. The lawyers described media articles tying care to hacking as false or fundamentally flawed. As for the 2010 Appen presentation boasting of hacking services, they said Carr had never seen it before. The document is a forgery or was doctored, they said. Claire Locke added that Carr could not be held responsible for Appen employees who went on to work as mercenary hackers, saying that doing so would be akin to holding Harvard University responsible for the terrorist bombings carried out by his former student, Ted Kaczynski referring to the former math prodigy known as the Unabomber. A lawyer acting for Rajat's brother, Anuj, said his client's position was the same as the one laid out by Claire Locke. Uh, This report on Appen draws on thousands of company emails, as well as financial records, presentations, photos, and instant messages from the firm. Reporters also reviewed case files from American, Norwegian, Dominican, and Swiss law enforcement, and interviewed dozens of former Appen employees and hundreds of victims of India-based hackers. Reuters gathered the information, or gathered the material, rather, which spans 2005 until earlier in 2023, from ex-employees, clients, and security professionals who have studied the company. Reuters verified the authenticity of the Appen communications with 15 people, including private investigators who commissioned hacks and ex-Appen hackers themselves. The news agency also asked U.S. cybersecurity firm Sentinel-1 to review the material for signs that it had been digitally altered. The firm said it found none. We assessed the emails to be accurately represented and verifiably associated with the Appen organization, Sentinel-1 researcher Tom Hagel said. Though CARES lawyers say Appen focused on teaching cybersecurity and cyber defense, Company communications seen by Reuters detailed the creation of an arsenal of hacking tools, including malicious code and websites. Hegel and two other U.S. based researchers, one from cybersecurity firm Mandiant, the other from Semantic, all worked independently, were able, all working independently, rather, were able to um, match that infrastructure to publicly known cyber espionage campaigns. It all lines up perfectly, Hegel said. Over the past decade, Google saw hackers linked to Appin target tens of thousands of email accounts on its service alone. That's according to Shane Huntley, who leads California company's cyber threat intelligence team. These groups worked very high volumes to the point that we actually had to expand our systems and procedures to work out how to track them, Huntley said. The original Appin has now largely disappeared from public view, but its impact is still felt today. Copycat firms led by Appen alumni continue to target thousands according to court records and cybersecurity industry reporting. Well, that's about as far as I want to get. But as I said, it's 21 pages long. We got into four pages of it. Um, it's a fascinating story. It's a story that I imagine people really are interested in finding out more about. Here's the problem, though. You won't find this story on the Internet, at least not on the writer's site. Why? Because it's been taken down because of, of of threats from courts in India, from um, all kinds of of uh, legal firms, and not only has this story disappeared, but many stories that talk about the story disappearing have also disappeared it's It's actually more interesting than what appen is being accused of here, which you know we can also discuss. But I think really what uh, people in the hacking community, people in the um, uh, freedom of speech uh, community are most fascinated by is when um, um, powerful firms are able to silence critics or investigators and just shut down the conversation. We've seen many stories disappear. We've even seen podcasts discussing this disappear. Joining us for this discussion tonight... From the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we have Senior Public Interest Technologist, Cooper Quinton, and we have Civil Liberties Director and Senior Staff Attorney, David Green. Gentlemen, thank you and uh, welcome to Off the Hook.
1: Hi, Michael. Happy to be here.
2: Happy to join you. So this is an incredible story. Is, is, Is it not? I mean, seeing... How this has disappeared um how this this original writer's story, which was very thoroughly researched twenty one pages long um and a, a lot of people were part of the investigation um What does it tell you what is what is going on here how How does a court in India have the power to shut this down globally
5: so the the court in India issued a judgment and issued order that ordered Reuters to take the story down. It actually also um, uh, it also indicated that it had reached an agreement with Google to deindex uh, to deindex the story. Um, so actually, Reuters and that's disturbing. We don't like foreign courts telling you know making difficult for us not in that country to to read stuff. Um, but Reuters does have to comply with the Indian court order for better or for worse. What I think is really shocking and really disturbing is how others are using that Indian court order to make it seem like everybody has to take down every, you know, everything they've written and said about the story, even though the Indian court order doesn't say that you know, in any way. At all, it's only limited. It only says Reuters has to take it down, um, and, and and whatever Google is going to do. So. Um I think we can be there I don't know if there are other ways Reuters could have complied with the order. It doesn't seem so from the language of the order, but that case is still ongoing, and so hopefully at some point you know they'll be able to republish the story.
2: So so who is it who is uh, going beyond what the Indian court initially uh, was ordering?
5: Yes, yeah, so there's an entity called the Association of Appin Training Centers. That is apparently a group of of people who are associated with Appen, who use the Appen techniques, and who continue to train people. Um, and again, the sort of the the corporate structure of this whole thing is really confusing because there, there's it's it's unclear whether what. Who uses the app and name, who's authorized to use it if there's a former app and entity that doesn't exist anymore. But there's this group called the, the association of app and trading centers in India that says that they still you know, use the app and name for trading purposes and that you know, they and their the, and their directors, the one who brought this action in Indian courts in the Delhi in the New Delhi court. Against first Reuters, they've also since brought one against uh, the New Yorker as well, um, and so there. And, and what they've done since they got this Indian court judgment is they've gone around. They've been sending emails to lots of people who have, you know, written about this or either republished the Reuters article or or digested it or talked about it and say, um, and, and you know, first you, know, asking them to help remove this information, but then they also. To some people, you represent that the Indian court order found that the article was defamatory, which it didn't. It represent that they'd be in contempt of court if they did not remove um, the article, their articles. Um, and again, that's, that's not true.
2: But it was effective because apparently a lot of people were intimidated or a lot of organizations were intimidated by that language.
5: Yeah, you know, it's not unusual when if you're just a publisher and you get something from someone telling you there's a... Indian court order saying you have to take something down, you know, your choices are to spend a lot of time and a lot of money looking into it and seeing if that's actually the case or just to take it down. And uh, it's obviously much easier just to do the latter. Uh,
2: Cooper, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it it has been really effective. Unfortunately, over 20 stories have been taken down uh, as of this time, and you know, it's, it's it shows just how, you know, how, how sort of easy it is to, um, intimidate people by just, you know, even the presence of a lawyer, um, for better or for
2: worse. Well, we've got a bunch of them on the show right now, so I'm not sure, uh, uh we're going to be intimidated by this. And, uh, of course, reading the story, I guess is, uh, is kind of similar to publishing the story, although I couldn't read all 21 pages on the air. Um, but, um this is we've seen many instances in the past where um uh people have taken offense or uh, companies have taken offense at the way they've been portrayed in a story and the normal reaction is to is to uh counter with facts with evidence and in in uh, extreme cases um bring some kind of a lawsuit against the uh reporting entity if you feel that they have gotten uh, key facts wrong or they're defaming um what do you suppose it is about this that that made this case evolve differently? Uh,
5: yeah, I mean, well, you know, they did sue Reuters, right? So they they went that far, um, and um, it's going to be a lot of trouble for them to try and uh, to try and sue other people. So they sue Reuters. Um, And um, I I think they're just trying to get as much out of the interim court judgment in that case as they possibly can before they have to go through the time and expense of filing a lawsuit. They did sue the New Yorker. Um, Unlike Reuters, the New Yorker doesn't do business in India. And the court there um, said that it could not order the New Yorker because didn't have the ability to order a non-Indian entity to depublish. It said that it could not order the New Yorker. Uh, to take down to take down its article. So I that might have indicated then the limit of who they can try and drag into drag into Indian courts. But, you know, it's a fairly effective technique. I mean, we don't just see this in this case. It's actually not that uncommon for you people to get judgments in foreign courts and then to wave those around and and say, look, there's a court telling you have to you have to you know, depublish what you what you wrote.
2: Now, have, have, go ahead. uh,
1: And and the sort of exploit, and David can speak more to this, uh, but the the sort of exploit that they've used in this case is that the Indian courts, uh, apparently in in, uh, libel cases, tend to order the content taken down right away until the lawsuit is settled. And so, um, you know, by suing an Indian court, they were able to, they're able to instantly. Uh, take down the content, which achieves their goals, right? And they're able to tie this up, um, for years, you know, until everybody's sort of forgotten about the story and moved on, right? So it's, it's really sort of, uh, you know, they're taking advantage of an exploit in the Indian legal system, um, which, you know, happens to, happens to, um, be where they're located, but it makes it far more advantageous for them.
2: And, and they have the ability to make that a global, um, uh, action. Uh, So
1: I'm not a lawyer. David David is the lawyer. But 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 no, that we we argue that no, in fact, that they that they uh, do not.
2: Okay, so it's
5: not it's, it's not a global takedown. What what they what they said in some of their emails was they tried to represent it as such. And again, someone getting that email is. You know, they could try and hire a lawyer in India um, if they really want to look into it or they can take the story down. So it's been it's been fairly effective. I mean, not everyone has taken things down, but certainly lots of the reporting has been.
2: So if if Reuters had kept the story up, even if it was only um, uh, directed at an audience in the United States, they would still be be held liable.
5: Yeah, it's uh, Reuters does. This, you know, Reuters is a global um, global news company it does business all over the world so uh, Reuters um, you know, is subject to Indian courts uh, jurisdiction. so it's it's whether it, whether the Indian court could have decided instead of what it did to only limit their publication, in india or in in domains or you know, reuters in or it, it could have it, the indian court might have been able to do that but it didn't it, that's not what it did and, and that's i think is a question that would require you know someone with expertise in how indian courts work to answer but that's not that's not what the court did they ordered them to take it to take it down and because reuters is subject to indian court jurisdiction it it, it has to comply
2: Alex is our lawyer here on Off the Hook. I know you have uh, some some input for this. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, it's great to have you back, David, and um, and great to be in touch, Cooper. Cooper, by the way, just so you know, this is Alex that also sends the EFF, the DNS data, uh, every day. Oh, on, uh, yeah, Hey, Alex, so. it's
1: good, to, good to hear from you again. Yeah. I,
2: I, Alex, I think you hit a button because now, now you're not making any noise.
4: Ah, I did hit a button. You're right. Look at that. Yeah, what a what a small world indeed. Uh but great to have you both back. And, and and to talk about such an interesting topic here too is I think, you know, David's expertise on this being a, a really preeminent First Amendment scholar, I think, is, is so important to 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 how we interpret this. Um, and I but I, I also think it's just important to remember what Appen did here through their lawyers is essentially a social engineering attack. They took took something, they misinterpreted it, and they are using psychological pressure points in other legal departments around the world, essentially to force these companies into compliance. Because legal departments around the world, as David noted, you know, look, we are very risk averse as a uh, profession. If we see something come in and it looks like a valid court order, we're going to try to comply to the lowest common denominator and we don't want to get the company. In trouble, so our recommendation generally is going to be to comply with whatever the court's order is. And in my experience, and I, I think Cooper may have insinuated this too, but in India, things can be pretty extreme. And in my experience, especially with um, intellectual property matters and trademark filings in, in India, you really have to watch the, what goes into the pleadings because sometimes Indian counsel will put in some really inflammatory or, or highly hyperbolic language. And then you know the input essentially becomes the output, and and so you could come out, uh, you know, with a judgment from an Indian court that sounds quite far-reaching, but really isn't. Uh, and I and I think that media organizations need to stop the default posture of being comply with whatever the court order is for this very example, because. Other companies are going to weaponize that automatic default knee jerk reaction of complying with whatever the court order is. I think that we need to, to make much more noise about this particular story because it is so incredibly important. And um and if I recall correctly, the the reporter who originally broke this story was Raphael Satter at Reuters. And he's a uh, uh he's been on this show numerous times as well. I did not know that.
2: What
4: a small world this is. That is is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing that's really a very small world here, and I'll mention this to you guys, um, and we can talk about it more offline, but this is such an important story, I think, for the EFF as well, because if you look at the history of the Appen Technology Center and what it was before that, it was Beltrox before that. And Beltrox was this, essentially hacker for hire outfit that was running roughshod all throughout um, you i think from about 2015 onwards but so you can Bill connect comes
1: after appin is my understanding they oh. they they were they were uh, appin alumni
4: Oh, you know, that might be right. Yeah, it might be right. And then I think you have this Appin Technology Center that's trying to, you know, enforce this judgment around the world. So maybe it's kind of going full circle. But the The
1: Appin name has been passed around a lot, for sure.
4: And, Cooper, you may know more about this. But if you go back and you look at the Beltrox data, um, and I have a lot of data that is a separate branch of this, a separate branch of what I believe are are Beltrox-related attacks. But they all relate to a threat. Well, not all of them, but a good number of those earlier attacks relate to a threat actor that was associated with the name Amanda Lovers, and Amanda Lovers was also um, associated with attacks on the EFF quite a few years ago. I don't know if, yeah, uh, we actually you,
1: we actually wrote a story about this. Uh, the fish uh, for the future story. Yeah.
4: Yes. Yeah. So so it really is a a much smaller world. It goes really kind of full circle here, because, you know, if we can't get the word out about this type of threat intelligence and this type of data, then, you know, it's harming, I think, worldwide and global cybersecurity efforts as well, not just. It's, it's not just about reporting. It's about security.
2: And on that note, we're talking about something that uh, came out of a court in, I believe, New Delhi, in India. W- what if the court was in Moscow? What if the court was in Beijing? What if the court was in, in one of the uh, so-called adversaries, uh, of the United States? Um, and, and there was a story reporting on hacking attempts or something else coming from one of those nations. And they took exception to it and said, no, we're going to file suit against you. Would we be uh, find ourselves shutting it down because of what they say, or is is there something different about an Indian court?
5: So this uh, this uh, the, this phenomena where your people get foreign court judgments and then wave them around and say that everyone in the world has to take things down actually happens far too frequently. I mean, there's even uh, in the libel area there's a term for it, which is libel tourism, which means you file file your lawsuit in the most libel friendly jurisdiction in the world which probably right now is probably australia and you get a judgment there and you know and some courts will even do things like order people who they have no jurisdiction over to you know to um it's it's the takedowns are rare but they'll they might you know have you know, uh monetary judgments against people and then your choice is to defend a lawsuit in. If you're the one sued to go, you know, whether you want to defend a lawsuit in Australia, um, or or take a default judgment, you just you just ignore it and the the court enters default. The U.S. actually passed a law, uh, specifically to uh, specifically to address this, uh, called the Speech Act. And what that law says is that if someone obtains a foreign uh, court judgment in a defamation case, um, that judgments not enforceable in U.S. courts if they would not have won the case under U.S. law. So it, if someone has First Amendment defenses or statutory defenses or even state constitutional defenses um, that would have immunized them, then then the the foreign judgment cannot be forced against them in U.S. courts. Now, it means that person can't go to the foreign country because then – might be able to be enforced against them mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, it was such a big phenomenon that that congress actually passed the law to address it
2: so that doesn't apply in this case
5: um it, it well it doesn't well it does apply um that law is really designed for monetary judgments because uh, the court systems that will issue you know, sort of take order things to be depublished like here. That's actually quite unusual. Although I, I for what I've heard from talking to lawyers in India, it's it's routine in India. But that's that's um, that's actually quite unusual, especially for uh, a country that's that has its legal system founded on English Commonwealth uh, law, as as India does. Um, So and the Speech Act is really more designed uh, for monetary judgments. That being said, if they really tried to enforce the Speech Act against someone, um, if I tried to enforce it in U.S. courts, I I don't – I'm sorry. If they tried to enforce the Indian court order um, in U.S. courts, I do believe the Speech Act would be one of the many defenses that that someone would have.
1: I
2: see.
5: Well,
1: you know, it's um, – go ahead. I, I wanted to put myself in, in Reuters' chair for a minute too. Like, I think that their their concern is probably that if they try any any sort of um, you know legal cuteness, right, by leaving it up in the U.S. or leaving it up in other countries, that they expose their employees in India to risk. Right. Um, So I can I can understand why they're taking, you know, sort of the most broad stance, because they have a lot of employees in India that they don't want to put at risk. And in fact, Raphael Satter, who uh, we mentioned earlier, one of the authors of the original story, uh, he had Indian citizenship by marriage. um, And he has since this story came out, he's had that Indian citizenship revoked by the Indian court uh, um, you pretty, pretty clearly because of this story. So the the sort of um, the effects, right, aren't. Aren't without like you know the concerns aren't without merit right. Uh, they, there's definitely already some blowback against the journalists who reported this. Well,
2: you know that's that's kind of disturbing to hear because um, uh, my understanding is there's um, a criminal complaint uh, in India's uh, Central Bureau of Investigation against Care the uh, uh, the guy from from and Technology uh, that is. Publicly available, it can be seen, uh, and and um, despite that, the story was was ordered to be uh, uh, taken down. But it's still under investigation. How does the Indian court justify taking away someone's citizenship when they're complying with the court order in the first place? Uh, so my
1: understanding, and, and David can uh, probably correct me on this, but is is that the the Indian court decided that he. I think that somebody filed that he had, um, you know, basically, uh, since he is basically he has the equivalent of like an Indian green card um, and that he was besmirching the good name of India by writing these stories. And so that that was grounds to to revoke his citizenship. I don't know if David can correct that, but.
5: Yeah, I don't know anything about this. India has this special citizenship for um, people who don't reside in India. And I don't know anything about what qualifies or how you get it, why it gets revoked. But I do know that in the Appin Online Association of Appin Training Center's complaint against Reuters, one um, of the claims they make is that this story, even though it defames Appin, is actually does damage to the whole all the people of india because appin has trained so many so many people in india that its it, harm is 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 so widespread so they they are really casting this as about you know, harming you know the whole populace and not
2: just this company. So in their in their eyes, um, Appin is beyond any kind of critique or investigation. Anyone who does that is an enemy of the state of India. India is a democracy, so it's really, uh, or at least they were last time I checked. This is incredible that uh, we're seeing this kind of uh, of action taken against someone trying to get to the truth.
5: It, yeah. <laughs> It is. And I, I, I do think, you know, the Indian court order is an interim order. And so by its terms, it's saying that we are not making a finding. All, all we are making, all, all we have found is that they have, that the plaintiffs, this guy, um, uh, Pandy, who is represents Association of App and Training Centers, all I say is that he has stated claims that if he can prove are true, that that could be a successful lawsuit. That's all and and that's enough under Indian law to get uh this what an interim takedown order. So the court says that you know we're this is not a final order. We are you know Reuters has not submitted its evidence yet and um and so we're this is no final you know decision about whether the article is actually defamatory, but it's it's just what they call a prima facie it's just an order that they that they've made a prima facie case, so that's enough to enough to move forward and get this this temporary uh, temporary takedown order.
2: Now, w- one of one of the um, uh, reasons we're citing that uh, Reuters is complying is because they do business in India. Now, let's say uh, this was a situation where it was uh, an organization that did not do business in India; uh, they solely did business here in the United States. They were a small publisher, uh, and they printed a story like this and they put it online. But they put it online in the cloud, and they used amazon and While they don't do business in India, Amazon does do business in India. Would Amazon then be compelled to take down the story, and the publisher that was uh, a small publisher in the United States would be playing by amazon's rules then?
5: hey, I don't want to give them any ideas um <laughs> it, it, it certainly is <laughs> it, i i i i don't and I don't know how we don't know everything they've done and what they've uh what they've you know pursued i, I also i, I don't want to be i don't want to be too critical of uh people who've decided to take this down rather than incur the expense of like hiring a lawyer or whatever you know to try and figure it out and everyone makes their own risk assessment i i'm I'm, uh, you know, I I offer thanks, and I'm, uh, you know, and and uh, to those who have decided to keep it up, and who are brave enough and to weather legal risks, um, but you know, it's it's a tough thing to to be, you know, to get one of the to get someone just asserting these things, um, and um, one you know, of the reasons that we, we, uh, you know, and I, I guess we can get into this how how what we've done in terms of. Um, responding to what, these emails on behalf of of two of the pub, two publications um, was really to help try to embolden others who may have received the same emails, um, you know, if if they wanted if they wanted to make the decision to to not take their reporting down.
2: I guess we should also um, uh, discuss uh, to a degree uh, what's known as slap lawsuits, so a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Uh, which basically um, uh, is using an expensive legal claim against someone um, who, as, as you say, does not want to spend enormous amounts of time and money uh, on a lawsuit. Um, there, is, there are some states in, here in this country who have um, laws against SLAP lawsuits. Can you tell us something about that? Sure, yeah. So
5: a SLAP, it's an, it's an acronym, Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. And these are typically meritless lawsuits. So the idea about a SLAP is you have a lawsuit, it's it's not going to win, but merely by filing against somebody and, have, and, and burdening them with the expense, uh, the, the time and the money of having to defend it, you could get what you want, which is typically that they'll shut up. They'll either, you know, depublish what they publish, they'll agree not to speak anymore. Um, they will, you know, and again, it's not just about writing, it can be about, you know, I've seen them filed against people who are protesting, it's really just to get them, get people to stop exercising their First Amendment rights, whether by speaking or writing or or protesting. Um, And and this is taking advantage of the fact that even if you have really worthy defenses in the U.S. legal system, it can still be really difficult to assert them. Um, And so what anti-slap laws <clears throat> do is try to create a procedure to try and get rid of these lawsuits really quickly and then also create some disincentives for those who file them and they do this in two ways so in most these laws vary by state um, but most of them have some procedure where there's a, the court will very early on look at the merits of the case and decide whether this is a case that has even minimal merit. Um, and then if it doesn't, they can dismiss the case. Um, and typically they also have some provisions for, um, they have some provisions for, uh, for reversing attorney's fees. So if you're, uh, so that if you successfully get a slap lawsuit dismissed, then the other side, those who filed the lawsuit, uh, would have to pay your lawyer's fees. And so that's again, to both you know, disincentivize filing them as well as make it easier for people who get sued to get to get lawyers.
2: But this is not the case in all states, correct?
5: It's not the case in all states, um, and it's not the case in all countries, so there's not right. one of these in uh, uh, in there's not one of these in India, um, and and we do see slaps. As it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It happens. Uh, it happens all over. There's sort of a famous one in Malta uh, not too long ago. They're they're happy. There, uh, Greenpeace uh, has been slapped. I think in, you know, twelve different countries around around the world. So we we, we do see these. Um, you know, we do see the. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately a very common phenomenon. And again, yeah, you're right. Not every state has this protection. If you are sued in U.S. courts, um, in some states, you won't. I, I think maybe 38 states do. I'm not, not uh, completely honest.
2: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Greenpeace. Uh, Jason Kelly, uh, who uh, is a fellow EFF um, um, employee and also uh, writes for 2600, um, mentioned uh, the Greenpeace um, uh, lawsuit in uh, in next issues column. Uh, Basically, they were being sued by a company called Resolute Forest Products simply because they had blog posts saying such things as uh, logging. Their logging was bad news for the climate. And these these slap lawsuits can be um, uh, ways of really um, uh, quelling speech and making it so it's almost impossible to criticize or say anything that could be uh, seen as negative about a powerful entity.
5: Yeah, that's a really common that's a really common application uh, of, of slaps. Where there's someone who's very powerful, they get publicly criticized. Sometimes it's even they'll either you know it's even you know, people making comments you know at in public meetings and you know and, and things like that. Um, uh, and um, and so they sue them to get them to to get them to shut up. And fortunately, I mean, Greenpeace ended up winning, getting that case dismissed, and there was a very large. Attorneys' fees award, so that it ends up coming out okay for them. But I think if you'd ask Greenpeace, they would rather have not have had to go through the whole thing um, to begin with.
1: So now, and, and as you might ahead. imagine, and as you might imagine, it's a lot more. You know, for, for for a big organization like Greenpeace, right? They have a lot more funds. They have a lot more lawyers. They have a lot more appetite to fight this sort of thing, right? But for a small. A small environmental group or, or a really, you know, a grassroots organization, like they might not have the, you know, uh, legal backing or funding to really even fight something like this, right? So it's a lot more effective against smaller organizations, against grassroots organizations. And I r- want to really quickly shout out the work of the uh, of another nonprofit, the Civil Civil Liberties Defense Center, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, who've been working for years uh, helping small organizations, environmental organizations, fight these sort of slap lawsuits. They're
2: they're a great resource for this sort of thing. Go ahead, Kyle.
1: Yeah, I just
3: I uh, would emphasize that not only in the um, in the case that someone would be able to if they were they a small entity to fight it, um, but thereafter the lasting effects of the the overall intimidation of what what might be around the next corner constantly, and uh, how that affects their operations after. The you know po- the positive outcome or, or the the ability that if they're able to to get past it it just it just hangs over smaller organizations in ways that a really large entity might even just have institutional memory loss over it but it could really harm uh, something that's uh, really on a shoestring or otherwise um, would would cave to the kind of pressure that that they'd have to face. Um, Changing their habits or otherwise uh, their their um, overall
2: mission. Well, any uh, any other comment from people out in Skype land? Rob Gila, Alex.
4: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll jump in and say you know I I think we should talk a little bit about you know the the blowback here in in the Appen case and and what people like you know distributed denial of secrets and others are doing in order to to fight this this type of activity. Um, you know, in in law we had something called the Streisand effect, right? Which was you know filing a lawsuit essentially to stop attention from going to one particular object, but then you, you wind up filing this lawsuit that gets a lot of attention and you know the whole thing blows up in your face. And I, I think that the, the actions of a few uh, media outlets that have not taken this down, and I think David alluded to to those brave uh, outlets earlier, but I think it's really admirable, and I think that you know what we're doing here and talking about this tonight is really important too, because the more we bring attention to this type of activity, the less likely it's going to be successful again in the future. And I, I really think that, you know, we need to be able to, I think, number one, train lawyers and legal departments to not necessarily uh, kowtow to, uh, you know, the, the whims of, of all of these courts, some of whose public policies may not comport at all with our traditional notions of fairness and due process. I think we should view with skepticism these types of judgments. And I think that, you know, when it comes to news organizations as well, I think we're right to expect that they should fight for our First Amendment freedoms because it, you know, their bottom line depends on it, number one. And, you know, the, the other aspect of this is, you know, this is this, this affects all of us, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about First Amendment freedoms on the same day that, that Julian Assange had his uh, last high court appearance trying to contest extradition to the United States. And I think it, we are seeing uh, the press being attacked on many, many different fronts right now. And, and this one that involves a, I think, coordinated misinterpretation and manipulation of the legal system is particularly dangerous as well.
1: Speaking of small worlds, uh, the, so the, the term and effects uh, was actually coined by Mike Masnick, who's the uh, publisher of um, TechDirt, which is one of the two organizations that EFF. Um, is supporting, uh, uh, and we've, we've written, uh, they, them and Muckrock are two of the organizations that have received the letters from the Association of App and Training Centers asking them to take down their content. Um, and EFF has, uh, is, representing both of those organizations, um, in responding to those letters and asserting that, that, uh, there is no legal basis for this takedown. Um, but the, the, the stride's end effect is absolutely right. It's a, it's an interesting nexus there too, but I think that, with this sort of tactic that's being taken um in the courts by by the Association of Appin training centers uh, th- the strides end effect is exactly our best tactic here right the more that because they want to silence this story right they want this story to go away they want the reputation of of appin and and Kare to be spotless right and the more that we can talk about this story, the more that we can talk about the the really visceral reaction to this story by these organizations, right? The more that this spreads, the less effective their tactics are. Even if the Reuters story, you know, officially stays down, right? You can still read it on distributed denial of secrets, right? You can, and shout out to them for their amazing work, right? Uh, and you can still read about it on, on places like MuckRock and TechDirt and the EFF website and here. Uh, you know, you can hear about it here on the radio.
2: And it's interesting. So, yeah,
1: the Strides End effect is a fantastic, uh, uh, pushback to this.
2: Absolutely. And, and Cooper, is interesting because just as you were saying that, I was pulling up the story on Tech Dirt, and I really recommend uh, people read this. It's entitled, Sorry Appen, We're Not Taking Down Our Article About Your Attempts to Silence Reporters. <laughs> and I just think it's, that's brilliant. We need more of that. And uh, of course, uh, you folks at, at EFF are a, a major part of that. I don't know what we would uh, we would do without you. We're in the at the closing uh, minute, uh, but is there something that people can um, can do to get more information, stay involved, or uh, or help out?
5: Well, keep on reading the stories. Uh, <laughs> I think if you want more information, there. Are, I mean, so uh, Mike Mazik at Techdirt has has written about it a few times. Um, MuckRock, which was actually, you know, they got the nasty email from uh, Association of App and Training Centers because of their document cloud service, which Reuters used to actually host some of the documents. But uh, they've also written about it. Um, And so and and even uh, Wired magazine had uh, had a story recently. They've actually just gotten a letter, a takedown demand from Kare's U.S. lawyers threatening to sue them. The us courts so it'll be interesting to see how how that plays out
2: well i just wonder what we're going to get because uh, we read part of the story and we talked about this for an hour and we're going to continue talking about this on overtime which starts at eight o'clock on youtube just go to the link on 2600.com on the main page or simply go to channel 2600 on youtube um in the um, uh, few seconds we have left uh, what do you anticipate happening next in uh, what, what is the next step in all this
5: well in our letter in our email back to app and training centers we said here's why we think you're misleading people that you know, the Indian court judgment, it's not a judgment it didn't make any final determination that was defamatory uh that it only apply even if it did it only applies to reuters and google and no one else and even if it did apply to them it's not enforceable to u.s courts and we said you know if you disagree with any of this please let us know and we haven't heard back from them um i don't expect to ever hear back from them but
2: <laughs> well,
5: we'll- if we do we'll let you all know um uh, but I, it would be interesting to see whether um Kare's u.s lawyers actually file any actions in in u.s in u.s courts um, on his behalf
2: we've been talking with uh, david green uh, civil liberties director and senior staff attorney at the electronic frontier foundation as well as cooper quinton senior public interest technologist at eff and hopefully the both of you can uh, join us on overtime at eight o'clock as promised i will be asking people again at WBAI to, um, uh, support WBAI by calling 212-209-2950 or going to give to WBAI.org. We have defended freedom of speech from our beginning back in 1960 and we always will. I don't think there's a single radio station anywhere in New York City on any of the frequencies, AM or FM, that would dare to have an hour long conversation about this kind of thing where anyone who talks about it is targeted by powerful entities. That is our promise to you, our listeners, that we will always be here to do this, to stand up for your freedom of speech, for freedom of speech globally, and that we will continue to inform and um, and um, speak out when necessary. All right, we are off next week, but you can write to us, OTH at 2600.com. And uh, again, we will be on overtime at eight o'clock on YouTube. And we'll see you again on WBAI in two weeks. Good night.
0: This is Ralph Pointer. Join me and others every Wednesday, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on WBAI 99.5 on your radio dial. It would appear the human movement is such that at any moment in history, there are too few that understand possibilities of existence that would benefit all who inhabit this planet and are willing to act on this understanding. This program will feature that few. What are your views on these issues that impact your life today? What are your views on America today? What are your views on America's future? Can we talk? Call in 212-209-2877. Wednesday, 8 to 9 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 on your radio dial.